Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Hay and to today's event, which is in association with the University of Cambridge. Helen Castor is, the, is a historian of medieval and Tudor England and a by-fellow of Sydney Sussex College at Cambridge. You can ask her in the signing what a by-fellow is and she can explain it. Um, she's here to discuss Elizabeth I and she'll be signing copies of her most recent books uh, in the book tent afterwards. Please do give Helen Castor a warm hey welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's my first visit to Hay, and it's also the first time I'm getting to talk about, this is the advertising bit, my new book about her, the woman who started my obsession with history more years ago than I'm currently prepared to admit. The book I've written about her is short. You can see it's, it's a tiny pamphlet, really. Um, part of a series, The Penguin Monarchs, that gives every monarch from Athelstan all the way up to our own dear queen, an allocation of just 25,000 words. Everybody gets 25,000 words, no matter how long they've been on the throne. So in Elizabeth's case, this wasn't an easy task. And it may seem strange um, looking at what is only the beginning of a series of extraordinary and majestic portraits painted of her over a 45-year reign, that when I was trying to find a way to talk about her life in this very short book, the theme that occurred to me was insecurity. I hope it's clear that I don't mean insecurity in the sense of any lack of what we would call self-esteem. Elizabeth was extraordinarily able and extraordinarily self-possessed. But I did want to write a psychological study of this remarkable woman because I began to realize that Elizabeth's life was marked by a more profound and persistent lack of security in terms of her exposure both to psychological trauma and actual practical danger than anyone else I've ever studied. Now, that might sound odd. My last book was about Joan of Arc, and Joan of Arc's short life didn't turn out too well. But Joan of Arc didn't expect to die in the horrible way she did. In fact, right up to almost the very end, she firmly believed that God was going to save her. So what I'm talking about with Elizabeth is something rather different, a pervasive consciousness of threat, a life lived in the constant knowledge that very little could be relied on. And famous though Elizabeth is, I don't think we usually recognize that. And I don't think we usually recognize it partly because of just how famous she is. Stories that we know well, stories like the Tudors, can so easily slip into something in our minds a bit more like a fairy tale. We skip lightly through the familiar details and stop thinking about their human reality. And at the same time, we also know how well this particular story turned out. Not just with a coronation, but also Gloriana in all her glory. And because we know exactly what's coming, it's easy to see this ending as inevitable. The threats she faced are simply setbacks on her path to immortality. But the crucial point is that just as Joan of Arc didn't know she was going to die, Elizabeth didn't know she was going to end up like this. There was nothing 
inevitable about her triumph, nor even about her survival. So what I wanted to do today is start with one very particular telling of her story that might make us stop and think a little harder about the formative experiences of her life. And the version I wanted to start with was this. <laughs> it might be familiar to some of you. It's the Ladybird book, the story of the first Queen Elizabeth, published exactly 60 years ago in 1958. And what the author, the wonderfully named L. Dugard Peach, has to say about Elizabeth's early life is this. This is the first page of the book. You may not be able to see the details, but I will read it to you. Story time. On a fine Sunday in the late summer of the year 1533, more than 400 years ago, a baby girl was born at a palace at Greenwich on the River Thames between London and the sea. Her parents were the King and Queen of England, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, the daughter of an alderman of the city of London. The child was christened Elizabeth. Her father and mother, who were disappointed because she was not a boy, did not know that she was to rule over England as one of the greatest queens ever to sit on the English throne. King Henry VIII had been married before, <laughs> and Elizabeth had an elder sister named Mary. Mary was 16 years older than Elizabeth and was a very different kind of person. <laughs> She was to cause Elizabeth much trouble and unhappiness when they both grew up. And with that, we and the other Ladybird readers are whisked on to the reign of Elizabeth's sister Mary, who came to the throne when Elizabeth herself was not quite 20. So by this account, all of Elizabeth's problems seem to be traceable to Mary, a very different kind of person, by which we might read <coughs> Catholic uh, rather than reliable C of E. And of Elizabeth's apparently happily married parents, Henry VIII, and by this account, the not only C of E, but laudably middle class Anne Boleyn, we hear no more. What an extraordinary amount glides by under the surface of this single nothing-to-see-here page in which Elizabeth's glorious destiny is already loudly signalled. First, and most strikingly, is the fact that this happy family tableau lasted little more than two years, because when Elizabeth was not yet three, her mother Anne Boleyn was killed on the orders of her father. And this is perhaps the most familiar bit of the bludgeoningly familiar story of Henry VIII and his six wives. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. But here's the first point where we need to stop, stop ourselves. Because in 1536, when Anne Boleyn died, Beheading was not simply a known risk you ran if you tried to fly high at the Tudor court. Anne didn't know she'd put her life on the line in marrying Henry. Before 1536, high-born women simply did not face educa um, education. <laughs> they were beginning to face education. They did not face execution, no matter what they'd done. I've looked all the way back to the conquest and beyond so far as I've been able, and in all those centuries, I can't find a single English noblewoman, let alone an anointed queen, as Anne was, who was sentenced to death. This was an unprecedented and deeply shocking moment, and it left Anne's only child facing a terrifyingly unpredictable future. For two and a half years, Elizabeth had been Princess of England, the heir to her father's throne. 
But now, with her mother found guilty on trumped-up charges of adultery with five men, one of them her own brother, and her parents' marriage annulled, Elizabeth was a bastard. No longer a princess, but simply the Lady Elizabeth. And she was so young that she was left without any real memory, not only of her mother, but also of a time when her own position in the world had been truly safe. And that's before we get to the fact that over the next six years, Elizabeth gained and lost three stepmothers. Jane Seymour died in 1537 after giving birth to Henry's son, Anne of Cleves rejected by Henry in 1540 before their marriage had even taken effect, and then Catherine Howard, a teenage cousin of Elizabeth's mother, killed in 1542 in the same way as Anne as a result of similar charges of sexual misconduct, all before Elizabeth was nine. Then, from the time she was almost 10, a fourth stepmother, Catherine Parr, provided some measure of greater stability within the royal family. But of the three royal children, Elizabeth was by far the most vulnerable. Edward was the cosseted heir to the throne. Mary, the daughter of a Spanish princess, at least had powerful relatives on the continent to keep an eye on her welfare. But for Elizabeth, there was only her father, the man who had killed her mother. He was the one certainty that remained. Without his approval, she couldn't hope to flourish. As she said, in the only surviving letter that she wrote to him when she was 12, probably just before this portrait was painted, I am bound unto you as Lord by the law of royal authority, as Lord and Father by the law of nature, and as greatest Lord and matchless and most benevolent Father by the divine law, and by all laws and duties I am bound unto your majesty in various and manifold ways. Now, this was a schoolroom exercise to demonstrate to her father her mastery of rhetoric, but it doesn't mean it wasn't fundamentally true. So what did all of this, all of this trauma and uncertainty, what did it do to Elizabeth? Seemingly, the most straightforward answer is that we don't know. There's no record, for example, in the surviving sources of Elizabeth ever directly mentioning her mother, not even saying her name. And arguments from silence are not easy for historians to make. To give you a couple of responses to this dilemma, more or less picked at random, the historian David Lodes says this. How much Elizabeth would have remembered of her mother is highly uncertain. She was less than three years old at the time of Anne's execution. Although she must have seen her fairly frequently, they had never spent long in each other's company. In later life, she was very aware of her mother's fate, but seems not to have been emotionally affected by it. By the time that she was old enough to think about such things, she knew that it was her father who mattered, who was still there. And he goes on to suggest that it was probably Elizabeth's governess who was most uh, badly affected. David Starkey sees Anne's death as a terrible blow for Elizabeth, and her father's role in it more terrible still. But how deep the wound went, we do not know, as Elizabeth never wrote or spoke a single word about it. Her father's name was to be constantly on her lips, her mother's and her mother's death, never. The one immediate impact Starkey points to is that the shower of lovely clothes which Anne Boleyn had lavished on her daughter suddenly dried up. And of course, that is the one thing that can be traced in the financial records. But after that, he sees Elizabeth as a young woman who inherited all the overweening self-confidence and egotism of her house. But there are other ways of reading silence, ways that might suggest not overweening self-confidence, but the insecurity that comes from traumatic emotional dissonance. We know she never spoke of Anne. We know she lionized the father who'd killed her mother. 
But when Elizabeth eventually had complete control over her own environment, she chose to surround herself with her mother's relatives in her privy council and in the royal household. And there's one exquisite object that seems more intimate still, a mother-of-pearl locket ring which Elizabeth owned in her later years. On the outside, it has Elizabeth's monogram, ER, in table-cut diamonds. But on the inside, miniature-paired portraits of Elizabeth and Anne. So at the very least, it doesn't seem to me we can argue that the knowledge of her mother's violent death was absent from Elizabeth's psyche. In other words, Elizabeth's silence can be seen as evidence in itself. Her opacity, her unreadability, isn't a trick of the historical light. She was just as unfathomable to her contemporaries, to the people around her, as she is to posterity. And her habit of wearing a public mask, of presenting a carefully constructed public self, was one that began very early. In February 1548, when she was 14, so probably not long after this portrait was painted, she wrote in a letter to her brother, now the young King Edward VI, that it is, as your majesty is not unaware, rather characteristic of my nature not to say in words as much as I think in my mind. And there are two things we could note here. First, that wonderful self-description of her guardedness, the sense that there was so much more going on behind those dark eyes that she'd inherited from her mother. And second, there's the self-referentiality. She's saying this out loud. She's saying out loud that she thinks more than she says. And bear this, as mind as, and bear this in mind as we go on. So often, Elizabeth's guardedness takes the form of hiding in plain sight, She'll sometimes tell us and the people around her what she's thinking. We just won't always know whether or not to believe her. When she wrote this letter, a year after her father's death, she was living with the widowed queen, her stepmother, Catherine Parr, and with Catherine's new husband, Thomas Seymour, the brother of the dead Queen Jane. The Tudor family is just made for soap opera. Uh, Coronation Street of a different kind, perhaps. But the uncertainties of Elizabeth's position had only multiplied. The lives of most royal women were shaped by diplomatic marriages to noble or royal husbands. It was a matrimonial game in which they were pawns. Elizabeth and her half-sister Mary were pawns. They weren't going to choose their own husbands. But they were pawns whose value was extraordinarily difficult to assess. They'd each been declared illegitimate, in turn, when their father's marriage to their mother's had been annulled. Legally, they were bastards. But at the same time, Henry's act of succession of 1544 named them as royal heirs to their brother. Legally, they were bastards who might inherit the throne. Henry himself wasn't at all bothered by this contradiction. Like the White Queen through the looking glass, he had no trouble believing six impossible things before breakfast if it helped with his project of making sure that what he wanted was always somehow right. But it left both Elizabeth and Mary in political limbo. Who among the royal families of Europe would want a royal bastard as a bride? And who, given that these two young women just might one day wear the crown, who would the English king and his council let them marry? For now, Elizabeth found a place within her new makeshift family. 
until in May 1548, she was suddenly sent away from her stepmother's home. At the end of the summer, Catherine died in childbirth. And four months after that, in January 1549, Thomas Seymour was arrested on charges of treason. And at that point, it emerged that he had not only flirted outrageously with Elizabeth when they were all under the same roof, but after Catherine's death, he'd planned to marry her. And Elizabeth, it turned out, hadn't been resistant to Seymour's advances. If, as seems likely, this was an adolescent crush on a much older, handsome, charismatic man, a father figure who wasn't completely sexually out of bounds if he asked for her hand, it's only likely to have been intensified, I think, by the fact that the prospect of marrying Seymour would spare Elizabeth the usual fate of royal daughters. Again, I think we're so used to the idea that a good marriage for a princess was a royal one that we don't think enough about the human reality of sending a teenage girl alone to a foreign country to become the wife of a man she'd never met. But if marrying Seymour had been Elizabeth's daydream, his arrest suddenly revealed it as nightmarishly dangerous. And for the first time, Elizabeth's public mask became not just a habit, but essential protection. Under interrogation, with her closest servants in prison, she wouldn't budge. She'd not been involved in Seymour's plans, she said, and there had been no discussion of marriage, at least without the explicit proviso that the King's Council must agree. Sir Robert Turwitt, the man who'd been put in charge of extracting her confession, was confident to start with. I do see it in her face that she is guilty, he said. But only a day later, he was sounding a lot more harassed. I do assure your grace, he told Seymour's brother, who was in charge of government, she has a very good wit, and nothing is gotten off her but by great policy. Actually, he could have stopped at nothing is gotten off her. Thomas Seymour lost his head as a traitor in March 1549. But Elizabeth, at the age of 15, had saved herself and her servants by taking up a defensible position and refusing to move. It wouldn't be the last time. The same tactic served her well during the attempted coup after her brother Edward died very young in 1553, when her Protestant cousin Jane Grey was placed on the throne in the attempt to exclude her Catholic half-sister Mary from the succession. Elizabeth kept her head down so successfully during this crisis that we know nothing about anything she did or said within the walls of her home at Hatfield during the nine days it took to secure Mary's victory. And then, to catch up with the Ladybird book, she faced the very real dangers that confronted her with Mary on the throne. Though not because Mary was, as Eldugard Peach would have it, a strange woman. I do love this portrait of Mary, just a very quick sidebar. She's wearing a spectacular pearl on her breast there, which Philip of Spain, who was to become her husband, had given her. It's a pearl called La Peregrina, which had recently been discovered, and uh, Philip presented it to Mary. It was later bought by Richard Burton for Elizabeth Taylor. And there's a, there's a very different picture of Elizabeth Taylor wearing it nestled in her cleavage. I'm not sure Mary would <laughs> have approved. But from the moment of Mary's accession, Elizabeth was once again heir to the throne for the first time since her mother's death. But the complications and the contradictions of the almighty mess that Henry VIII had made had caught up with her and Mary both. 
Mary was Catholic. Her whole identity was predicated on the faith that her father had abandoned when he rejected her mother. And Elizabeth necessarily was Protestant. She was the living embodiment of the new Church of England that Henry had created in order to marry her mother. So unless or until Mary had a child, Mary's Catholic England was at risk with Elizabeth as the Protestant heir to the throne. And the risk worked both ways. Elizabeth as the Protestant heir to the throne was at risk in, in Mary's Catholic England. Within months, Elizabeth found herself in the tower, a prisoner suspected of treason in the same apartments where her mother had spent her last days. This was intense psychological pressure. But her composure was impenetrable, just as it had been during the Seymour affair. Or at least she wept, but what she said and what she did remained consistent. She was innocent of conspiracy, she declared. If Mary and her council believed otherwise, they must prove it. And the truth was, as the Spanish ambassador admitted through gritted teeth, there is not sufficient evidence to condemn Elizabeth. Elizabeth survived. Not only that, but she was saved by Mary's tragedy. Mary failed in her attempt to bear a child. She failed even to live into her 50s, as both of her parents had done. In November 1558, Mary died at the age of just 42. Now, against all the odds, Elizabeth was queen. She was 25 years old, 25 years of which 23 and a half had been spent in varying degrees of uncertainty and outright danger. But the threats weren't over, they'd just changed in form. Now, clearly, unless I were going to keep you here all day, I can't talk about everything that happened in Elizabeth's reign. It turns out 45 minutes might be even more impossible than 25,000 words. But what I can try to do is point out some of the ways in which I think her experiences and her psychology shaped her approach to the challenges that faced her as queen. First of all, I think it's worth saying that over the course of 25 watchful years, she'd become an extremely astute judge of character. If she could help it, she wasn't going to make the same mistake she'd made with Thomas Seymour again. She appointed a government full of able, loyal men. From her spirit, as she called him, William Cecil, who became her Secretary of State at the beginning of her reign, to later Cecil's protege, Walsingham. Good appointments breed more good appointments. She was much less fond of Walsingham, but she knew just how valuable he was. And then, of course, there was her master of the horse, <coughs> Robert Dudley, of whom she was a great deal more fond in ways that raised eyebrows across Europe. But these men and others with them formed the heart of her regime. And even though their relationship with her could at times be very difficult, her commitment to them and theirs to her never wavered. Poor Cecil was still in harness at 77, crippled by arthritis and gout, still working as hard as ever right up to the bitter end. So Elizabeth, in other words, was setting up a court, a government, of people she trusted and was right to trust. And then she tried, wherever she could, to avoid change. And that was her instinct, her choice in policy too. She faced two major, well, at least two, but two major <clears throat> profoundly difficult issues at the start of her reign. First of all, religion. It was clear that she wasn't, she couldn't be Catholic. But what kind of Protestant would she turn out to be in a country and a continent that were riven 
by religious division. The settlement that was hammered out in 1559 at Elizabeth's first parliament shows all the signs of being Elizabeth's own. It was a theologically idiosyncratic one that few, if any, of her leading churchmen actually really supported. Of course, it was too much for her Catholic subjects in its definitive re-breaking with Rome. But it wasn't enough for most committed Protestants who wanted more far-reaching reforms aligned with those that were taking place on the continent. It was Elizabeth who wanted a church that emphasized obedience, loyalty, and conformity, rather than ideological hard lines, so that as many as possible of her subjects could offer her their obedience in worship as well as in everything else. Fittingly, it looks to me very much like a church in her own image. It was performative and theatrical, with vestments and ritual that she loved and her bishops hated. And the doctrine of the Eucharist in her prayer book was adjusted to allow room for interpretation about the central doctrine of whether the bread and the wine really became the body and blood of Christ. This was the key issue over which theologians and ideologues fought, and Elizabeth proved willing to fudge it. As her first Archbishop of Canterbury, she appointed Matthew Parker, one of the few leading clerics who'd not spent Mary's reign in Calvinist Geneva and who, we might note, had once been her mother's chaplain. And for the first time ever, she appointed not one single churchman to her privy council. So this was a deliberate act. Pressure for change was built into the Elizabethan religious settlement, given that she had no choice but to appoint bishops who wanted more reform than she did. The leading Protestant churchmen all wanted more reform than she did. But still, she took up her own position and she sought to defend it. You might be detecting a theme by now. And it appears again, I think, even in the apparently giddier and endlessly debated question of her marriage, which, of course, marriage opened up the can of worms that was the whole question of her sex. And here, I think we need to recognize that she and Mary before her were wrestling with a fundamental challenge to the entire nature of their sovereignty. Because the accession of these Tudor queens left their subjects and all contemporaries facing some very perplexing questions. Could a woman rule at all? If so, could a woman rule alone? Because after all, as St. Paul had said, man is the head of woman. And if some form of female rule in practice had to be accepted simply because there were no male heirs left on the Tudor family tree, then at least some male help would surely be required so that the queen could be supported in the labor of governing and assisted in matters that are not of ladies' capacity, as the Emperor Charles V had told Mary when she came to the throne. And of course, it was deeply alarming that Elizabeth was the last of her line. The universal assumption was that she needed an heir, and the sooner the better to secure the future of the kingdom. The one person who had other ideas was Elizabeth. She didn't think she needed help to rule, other than the advice, not the instructions, the advice of the councillors she'd appointed. As she said in a prayer she wrote soon after her accession, 
God had chosen me, thy handmaid, to be over thy people, that I may preserve them in thy peace. Under thy sovereignty, princes reign, and all the people obey. And given that she had been chosen by God to reign, what would it mean for her to marry? If man was the head of woman, then would her husband be sovereign over the sovereign? Any hint of that would mean that marrying an Englishman would be a logical impossibility. How could she owe obedience as a wife to a husband who was one of her subjects? But it also meant that marrying a foreign prince would run the risk of the kingdom being subsumed by a foreign power. And that fear, rather than any immediate reality, had already caused Mary significant problems after her marriage to Philip of Spain. So the question of marriage presented Elizabeth with problems that no king would face. And exactly the same was true of the issue of having an heir. Two of Elizabeth's stepmothers had died in childbirth. There was a very real risk that, even if she could somehow conjure a suitable husband out of thin air, if she were to become pregnant, the outcome might be England being left with neither heir nor queen. And again, no king ever faced this danger. A king could safely keep marrying, as her father had done, until the required heir appeared. And to all of these very real, practical, political objections, we might add a personal one. The association, the very close association in her history between sex, marriage, and violent death was hardly likely to encourage her in that direction. And in fact, if we look at Elizabeth's first speech to her first parliament, that is exactly what we see. An insistence that she, not her subjects, would choose any husband she did ever decide to marry. And that even if she didn't, God would provide an heir for the country by some other means. But for herself, she said, and bear in mind this is a few months into her reign, it's the very beginning of 1559. In the end, this shall be for me sufficient, that a marble stone shall declare that a queen, having reigned such a time, lived and died a virgin. She said it. She said it out loud at the very beginning of her reign. But as it turned out, and as so often with Elizabeth, no one was listening. This time, it wasn't just her public mask that let her hide in plain sight. She was also simply not believed. For that she should wish to remain a maid and never marry is inconceivable, as one German diplomat wrote. And so began the courtships, the dalliances, and the negotiations, the two decades of a matrimonial dance about which there have been centuries of speculation. She did take part. This portrait is a portrait full of the symbols of fecundity and fertility. She was prepared to participate in the idea that she might one day get married. She went through the motions, but in such a way that her contemporaries were baffled. As the Spanish ambassador said in 1566, she is so nimble in her dealing and threads in and out of this business in such a way that her most intimate favorites fail to understand her, and her intentions are therefore variously interpreted. Of course, given how mercurial and simultaneously opaque she managed to be, I can't guarantee what was in her mind, unless or until we discover the secret diary of Elizabeth I, aged 26 and a half. But I can point out just how many times she said she didn't want to marry and intended not to. And I can also see the profound advantages from Elizabeth's point of view of maintaining that position. 
she could create space for herself, politically and diplomatically, by standing still. Every suit for her hand was a valuable card to be played in the poker game of international diplomacy. But saying no, sooner or often later, meant she still kept her freedom of action for the future, rather than being locked into an alliance that couldn't subsequently be changed. And that's a particular danger for a female sovereign. Henry VIII could marry Catherine of Aragon, and if he later chose to break his alliance with Spain, tough for Catherine, stuck in England, but he still had that freedom of action. Mary, married to Philip II, the King of Spain, couldn't break the alliance with Spain in anything like such a free-handed way. Elizabeth drove her ministers mad because women as she was and men as they were, they thought they knew better. And there's no doubt she could be. She was infuriatingly capricious. But what I think we also have to recognize is that a never-ending process of apparently changing her mind from moment to moment could also be the outward expression of a fundamental intention not to change her mind, not to take a step that she saw as more dangerous than the situation in which she already found herself. It seems to me that on every front, what Elizabeth was trying to do was preserve the known risks of the position she'd already taken up, the status quo that she'd established, rather than precipitating unknown dangers through the unpredictable effects of change. And that was never more clear than in her management of the greatest and most long-running long threat to her reign. The fact that the Catholic world saw her not only as a heretic, but thanks to the circumstances of her birth, as a bastard who had no right to sit on the throne she occupied. This was an implicit threat right from the very beginning, but it intensified for all sorts of reasons, including the currents of European politics. And it became terrifyingly explicit in the 1570s and 1580s, once her Catholic cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, who'd been claiming the throne of England for years, had lost her own throne in Scotland and fled her own kingdom to become a prisoner in Elizabeth's England. If I had another whole hour, there's so much to say about this extraordinary situation and this dramatic relationship between two cousins who never actually met, despite the insistence of every film you'll ever see that they did, because of course you can't make the film without putting them in the same room, um, but who seem in some ways a reversed mirror image of one another. But just briefly, as a vicious spiral took hold, in which English Catholics were increasingly forced to choose between their loyalty to their God and their loyalty to their Queen, Elizabeth tried to hold the line. She didn't want to kill Mary, not because she was sentimental, and not because she didn't care that Mary was the focus of plots against her and increasingly a plotter-in-chief. She didn't want to kill Mary because she didn't want to take responsibility for killing an anointed queen. The beheading of an anointed queen was, after all, a devastatingly unhappy part of her past. And as an anointed queen herself, it seemed to her a very dangerous precedent to set for her own future. And not only that, but in practical terms, Mary, under lock and key, with her correspondence intercepted by the ever-vigilant Francis Walsingham, was at least a known danger. If Mary was gone, the threat, as Elizabeth of all people knew, wouldn't disappear. What form would it take next? 
And here's where we might note that when Elizabeth was finally pressed into signing Mary's death warrant in 1587, after a plot was not just uncovered, but probably pushed along its way by Walsingham in his desperation to remove the danger, as he perceived it, of the Scots Queen. Mary's Catholic claim to the throne passed instead to Philip of Spain, who had a claim way back in his family tree through John of Gaunt, the son of Edward III. And the immediate result was the launch of the Armada. Ten years earlier, Walsingham had referred to Elizabeth obliquely and despairingly as us who are in a deep sleep and heedlessly secure because she wouldn't take the measures that he believed were necessary to protect her, measures like killing Mary. He couldn't understand that his queen, who far from being in a deep sleep, had suffered from insomnia all her life, had a different understanding of where the route to personal and political security might lie. For Elizabeth, such security as she'd ever been able to find lay, as one of her favorite mottos had it, in being semper eadem, always the same. Of course, nothing could really be always the same. And she'd learned that in the process of attempting and failing to resist the political tide that swept away Mary, Queen of Scots, and brought the Armada to England's shores. But it didn't stop her trying. Once time had taken away from even the most hopeful of her counsellors the possibility that she might marry and have children, she turned herself instead from a virgin queen into the virgin queen. Gloriana, an icon decked about with signs and symbols. There are signs and symbols everywhere you look in this portrait. The eternal incarnation of her kingdom's God-given greatness. But here, too, the cracks started to show, not just in the glazed makeup, the white lead and egg white that she used to create this mask of youth. This was a painting, um, painted, a portrait painted when she was in her late 60s. So clearly the equivalent of Photoshop was working very well. But the cracks started to show, too, in the loss of her right-hand men. First Dudley in 1588, then Walsingham in 1590, then Cecil in 1598. Cecil's son Robert stepped very ably into his father's place. But it was in these years, as age caught up with the Queen and with her counsellors, that she made her first, I would say, major misstep in her judgment of character in promoting Dudley's vapidly narcissistic stepson, the Earl of Essex, in a vain attempt to fill his dead stepfather's shoes. But there is one more way in which it could be said that Elizabeth's considered deployment of insecurity helped tackle the last threat to herself and her kingdom. The succession to her throne had been a subject of tense debate throughout her reign. Elizabeth had gambled on herself. She'd chosen to prioritize the present over the future to the intense alarm of her subjects. And she'd consistently refused to decide or even discuss the subject of the succession despite her minister's insistence that her kingdom's security depended on it. And again, she had told them why. She, who, as she said in a speech to Parliament, had been the second person in her sister's reign, she knew all too well that acknowledging an heir, choosing an heir, naming an heir, would only provide a focus for those who wanted to plot against her, and at the same time alienate loyal subjects who disagreed with her choice. But because she wouldn't name her successor, a different kind of plot took place. 
her own ministers started working in secret to ensure the smooth succession of the one man who seemed to offer England some prospect of stability, James VI of Scotland, the Protestant son of Mary, Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth had kept dangling on a string for years with the prospect that he might possibly, perhaps, one day inherit her crown. And when she died in the darkness of the early morning on the 24th of March, 1603, one Londoner noted in his diary that there was no tumult, no contradiction, no disorder in the city. Every man went about his business as readily, as peaceably, as securely, as though there had been no change, nor any news ever heard of competitors. And that seems to me to be Elizabeth's final triumph. Thank you very much for listening. If anyone has any questions, I'd be very glad to try to answer them, at least. <laughs> um, I think if you put up your hand, there are microphones that can come to you. Oh, unless I've stunned you all into silence. There's somebody at the front here, if the microphone can... And, and one at the back, but if we start at the front and go right to the very back, and please do wave enthusiastically, because I'm a bit stunned. Hi, sorry, sorry I can't stand up. Um, Within 40 years of her dying, Parliament would be in the ascendancy. We, we never really seem to hear much about Parliament during all this turmoil. Uh, why is that? What, what is? You mean turmoil during Elizabeth's reign? Yes. Why don't Why don't they feature, you know, more strongly in the in the whole story? They did cause her. Um, they required management. The pressure for change to her religious settlement, in particular, often came through Parliament and pressure for her to marry often came through Parliament. But I think we have to be careful about reading backwards a whole story of opposition between Parliament and the monarchy. I mean, right from its very beginnings in um, the 13th century and on into the 14th century, um, and beginnings, you know, way back, it's evolutionary beginnings, Parliament was a tool for the monarchy. It was a way of getting money in a way that the monarchy couldn't otherwise, you know, no taxation without representation. And that representation meant that you were going to have to listen to grievances. Um, and it was going to be a question of how you manage those grievances, how you, uh, how you people managed the people who turned up in your parliaments. And so it wasn't that Elizabeth didn't face political challenges in her parliaments, but Again, it comes down to her relationship with her ministers, her ministers' relationship with parliaments. Sometimes her ministers were using parliaments to put pressure on her. She gave wonderful speeches to her parliament. Sometimes, you know, her charisma was um, deployed, her, her brilliant brain was deployed. Um, and so there's a, there's a sort of ongoing process of negotiation between her and her parliaments. And people who spoke out in her parliaments and went too far would be slapped down very firmly. There was um, a chap called Peter Wentworth who, who took it upon himself 
to remind her that she might die at any point. She didn't tend to like being reminded she might die at any point. Uh, and uh, that therefore she should name an heir. This is quite late on in the reign. She put him in prison for the last four years of his life. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a complex process. Um, but there's always a management that has to happen between monarchs and parliaments. And particularly once you add religion into the mix, of course, parliament had been a great tool for Henry VIII and his children in managing their religious, what they wanted to change um, in the religion of England. But you then had to put the work in, in terms of managing that relationship. And I think Charles I was very, very bad at it. <laughs> uh, if, that, if that answers your question. So Parliament is there. Uh, it's there, it's very interesting, and it needs to be managed. But it's this, this question of loyal opposition. Her parliaments were very loyal to her, but they were trying to push her into things she didn't want to do. So it's a complex equation. Um, there was a question right at the back. Hi. Um, I wondered if there's anything in the sources to suggest any closeness or affection between Henry VIII and Elizabeth, or was it uh, a, a formal relationship? And how could there be, really, in view of what he'd done to his, her mum? And also, is it possible to see that very moving locket that you talked about? I wish it were. It's at Chequers. It's kept at Chequers, and as far as I know, it's not usually on public display. Occasionally, it's lent for an exhibition. There was a remarkable exhibition a few years ago, um, I think, at the, uh, in Greenwich, at the um, Maritime Museum, if I'm thinking correctly. But, but no, sadly, I would love to see it up close. Um, it's not usually on public display. Um, very interesting question about Henry's relationship with Elizabeth. Um, and again, a tricky one. It was a formal relationship. Um, you know, they never, again, as Starkey's saying about Elizabeth and Anne, never spent much time together. But it is notable that despite the fact that Henry was claiming that he had never actually been married to Anne Boleyn, that Anne Boleyn had been having sex with five other men, including her own brother, uh, and was therefore guilty of adultery, despite the fact that they'd never actually been married. I mean, it's a... It's a tortuous web Henry weaves and just expects you all to nod and, and smile. Um, he never cast any aspersions on the idea that he might not be Elizabeth's father. Uh, he always acknowledged her. And, of course, of his three children, she was the one who looked most like him. And Elizabeth was very proud of the fact that she looked very like him. She liked the fact that um, when she you know, was a, um, in, in Mary's reign and then on into her own reign, when she showed herself to the people in processions and um, on progress, people would say how much she looked like her father, and she clearly liked that. Um, so I think when, when I, uh, I used the phrase earlier, sort of emotional dissonance, um, I, the, the sense I get is that, I mean, she couldn't reject her father, and he didn't reject her. Um, but Henry was so capricious that you, you were walking on glass the entire time. And Elizabeth was then left with this legacy where, of course, she didn't accept that her mother was guilty of the things she'd been accused of. But how to reconcile these twin inheritances? And it, it, it's notable. I mean, actually, I didn't, because of the extreme word limit, I didn't have a chance to mention this in the book. Uh, in her first parliament, there's a very tiny, very quiet piece of legislation that slipped through without any fanfare and without any very explicit wording that just says that uh, the Queen, the new Queen Elizabeth, is to be declared to be able to inherit from her mother in the normal way, and that any legislation in the past that has cast any aspersion on her mother is to be null and void. So she doesn't point out what that legislation is. She just sort of brings back Anne back into the legal royal fold um, without further comment. 
so, I, so I think she's very proud of her father. She's very proud to be his daughter. I think it's intensely complicated, and that kind of psychological inheritance is what I'm pointing to here. Um, are there more? There's somebody... There are ah, oh, I don't know what to do now. Okay, one... <laughs> sorry, we will come to you. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about how much direct um, uh, input Elizabeth would have had into her portraits. That is a very, very good, very good question. Um, again, slightly difficult to say. Elizabeth was brilliant at getting other people to do things for her, and the portraits are included in that. Um, it, more often than not, the portraits seem to have been commissioned and paid for by other people, which is very much how Elizabeth liked it. At the same time, it's very clear, for example, at the end of her reign, that she did not want portraits showing um, the signs of age on her face. It was very clear that this, this sort of mask was the template that people were being used to, uh, that, that, that was being used for the portraits, and it was very clear that this kind of uh, symbolic representation was very much in, in vogue. So I, I, she, she's, a, she's great at presiding over things, getting other people to do them in all aspects of her reign, and then she can take the credit for it if she wants to and distance herself if, if she doesn't. I mean, I think the portraits were fine by her unless any of them were too realistic. Um, but, you know, Mary's execution, yes, she signed the warrant, but she'd never meant it. That miserable accident, she called it um, to James in a letter, I mean, meaning a thing that happened, uh, rather than that the axe slipped and um, fell. But, but um, she, you know, she's, she's, she's very good at presiding, um, and I, I think that's probably true of the portraits as much as anything else. Um, uh, we've still got a few minutes. Um, oh, somebody's got the microphone over here, but... Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, do you think Cecil was aware of the Queen's sham tantrums, and it would affect it would affected his career? He was kicked out of office. Um, was he aware before he got her to sign the document, and then she tried to reclaim it back? Was you know? I think I think by 1587, Cecil had a very clear idea of who he was dealing with. Um, you know, there are letters from him which he's saying, she, she more or less says, she's driving me mad. Um, he dealt with this so often. Um, but one of the interesting things, I think, if you read books about Elizabeth, it's very um, striking how often historians end up siding with her ministers in their assessment of the situation because the minister's letters are the ones we have. And so the minister's letters are the ones where we can see human beings going, oh my God, you won't believe what she's done now, or, you know. And, and so we end up being frustrated with them and saying, you know, that the, the, there was a, there's a bit in um, two pages in a book by Christopher Hibbert, a very, very interesting book that I was rereading yesterday, where in the course of two pages he says, Elizabeth was brilliant, intellectually and politically brilliant, gives you evidence. She was bossy a word that doesn't get used of male rulers usually, and gives you examples of her being bossy. And then he says she was also deceitful and pathologically incapable of making up her mind. And I, I, I'm kind of struck... What, what I want to do when I look at someone like Cecil is say, right, what does Cecil want her to do? He wants her to do something that Elizabeth does not want to do and doesn't think is a good idea. So that kind of relationship of frustration on both sides, Elizabeth was frustrated with her ministers trying to push her, Cecil was very frustrated with having to do the pushing, but she never sacked them. She never, I mean, she knew that Cecil was a brilliant man and utterly trustworthy. So what you see over the course of 40 years with Elizabeth and Cecil is an intensely intimate, not, 
you know, uh, inten intensely intimate working relationship. Um, I think Cecil knew he was going to face consequences for because, you know, he sent the you know the, the warrant was sent in in a pile of papers. Elizabeth Reen refusing to sign the death warrant for months by this point, sent in in a pile of papers. She signed all of them. He got the secretary to whisk it away, got, went to the Privy Council, and Mary's head was off almost before you could blink. And Elizabeth, meanwhile, of course, is sent after it, saying, I didn't mean to sign that. I mean, classic Elizabeth, classic Cecil. And she banished him for months after that, but then brought him back. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dance they did, and it's a dance they did in order to make this very complex machine work. Um, I, I'm conscious that in the course of writing this book, I'm possibly siding too much with Elizabeth. I'm, I'm tipping the balance the other way, but I, I do think almost all previous historiogra historiography has seen Elizabeth through her minister's eyes, and I think gender has quite a lot to do with that because of the way she gets talked about. I mean, ministers were saying to her, you do know you ought to be doing what we tell you. I don't think they would have said that to Henry VIII, who, by the way, never gets called bossy and emotional. Um, <laughs> Um, could we come over, over, over here just for one? Because Who's got the microphone over here? Hello. I, don't, I don't know whether it's working. Yes, <laughs> it is. Um, I'd like just your view of her relationship with Dudley and whether you actually believe that she remained a virgin all her life. Or was that a fake, as was the, uh, the, fake, the face makeup? I mean, she was distraught at his death. She was utterly distraught and, at his uh, death. Very close to him. I think she really loved him. Um, she, he, he could drive her up the wall. I mean, the point at which she packed him off to the Netherlands at the head of an army to try and help the Dutch Protestant rebels against the Spanish in the wake of the assassination of William of Orange. She was finally induced. She hated having to put an army into the field, but she sent, she was prepared to send Dudley off with her army, didn't really want to let him go, but said, the one thing you must not do is accept the governorship of the Netherlands, because that would imply that I'm trying to undermine a fellow sovereign, again, a bit like Mary. She didn't want to kill Mary, she didn't want to challenge the sovereignty of Philip of Spain. She said, I'll help the rebels, but what does Dudley do? He goes and accepts the governorship, uh, at which point Elizabeth is absolutely furious, and it takes some months. The first letters are absolutely stinging and withering, but a few months later, she's back to calling him Robin and uh, sort of more or less saying how much she misses it. I think she, I think she really loved him, and I think he was devoted to her. Um, but this is an intense relationship of trust. I cannot see, I cannot see, given her history, given, I mean, given the kind of history, the association between sex and death that she's not only seen in her mother, her stepmothers. Um, look at Mary, Queen of Scots' career. Mary, Queen of Scots, did exactly what... Elizabeth's ministers were telling her to do, that is, get married to somebody suitable and have a son. Within a couple of years, she's lost her throne and is a prisoner in another kingdom. It, this is not a, an encouraging set of examples. Mary had made a suitable marriage, didn't help her. Um, I cannot see someone as risk-averse as Elizabeth. I mean, you know, this is my guess. I, 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 you know, none of us were in the bedroom. None of us can get into that bedroom. I cannot see Elizabeth taking that risk. There's one rather forlorn moment very early in the reign when people are, you know, within the first year, everyone is abuzz about who she might marry and what's going on with Dudley, and clearly, you know, he's allowed license, he has a very intimate relationship with Elizabeth. And Kate Ashley, Elizabeth's old governess, goes and sort of 
begs her, says, look, be careful. Be careful. The way you're acting with Dudley is causing gossip. It's going to do you harm. And Elizabeth says, slightly forlornly, and of course I haven't got the quote immediately to hand, but she says, there is so little joy in my life. Can I not spend time with him the way I want to? But it seems to me that she was going so far and no further because it was just too dangerous if she'd ever got pregnant. I mean, she was already... I mean, the, the, the insults that are hurled at her across Catholic Europe... You know, in England, she's the Virgin Queen, but across Catholic Europe, she's a whore. She's had children by Dudley and most of the rest of her Privy Council. Her mother was um, not only a whore, but the ride of all England. Um, she's a Jezebel. She's a she-wolf. You know, her body, the sexualization of her body is common currency in the insults that are being hurled at her and the undermining of her authority. I just can't see it myself, but the argument will rage on. Um, we, I think we've probably got time for one more. Who, who's got the conch? Who's got the, <laughs> the microphone? There's... Got the microphone. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about her action in moving her mother's body, Anne Boleyn's body, into Windsor Castle, St. George's Chapel. She didn't, though. Anne Boleyn still, is still in the tower. Anne Boleyn's body is still in St. Peter Advencula in the tower, uh, oh. in the chapel. Um, that's one of the remarkable things. I mean, it's so silently done. I mean, the silence is so overwhelming that this very quiet, as I say, statute put through her first parliament to restore Anne to her legal position. But otherwise, she was literally leaving the bodies buried. She didn't move her, her, her mother's body. She didn't state that she had been innocent in words of one syllable. What she did, as I say, was surround herself with Boleyn cousins. Um, and go about her business as a proud Queen of England, as Anne Boleyn's daughter. We have to read that as we can, I think. And I think we're running out of time. I'm so grateful to all of you for being such an amazing audience. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>